rolling. We're live. Welcome to another episode of The Student Manager. It's Fonger News, and it's a beautiful 65, 66 day in North Scottsdale between Mummy Mountain and Camelback. And we have Sam Riggs Bazonian from Foreplay Barstool Sports. Riggs, thanks for being here. Probably the nicest day of the year, to be honest with you. <laughs> I've, been, I've been going in and out since probably March, um, and it was, you know, hot. Really hot, 115, 120 kind of days. Yep. And now you came here, so you might be good luck. It's like 65, like you said, and sunny, not a cloud in the sky, so it's perfect. It's like every time I go to University of Washington or University of Wisconsin, I bring the sunshine. They're like, Fonger, you brought the California sunshine because <laughs> it's going to heat up here in the next couple of days, right? Oh, yeah, it'll be 90. <laughs> but again, 90s here, not that bad. They do, uh, we get mocked a lot out here now, and I say we because I moved here about a year ago, but uh, we get mocked for calling it a dry heat, but it's true. It's really not that bad when it's 90 here. It's when it gets. High one one oh eight, one oh nine to like one twenty, you really gotta be absolutely a little nervous. That's why we're doing this in October and not in August. That's right, exactly. So I'm gonna reset the student manager obviously is a podcast that helps high school students and parents with the college search and admission process. And I know I've been reaching out to you uh, for the last three months and you have a unique, interesting story, not only because you went to Harvard from Rosemary Choate. Uh, high school preparatory school played hockey but then after your experience at Harvard and we'll get into that you are a Barstool personality again foreplay it's uh like it before sex and definitely before golfing <laughs> <laughs> I do that yeah it's been a wild ride it's kind of uh, I think it's probably unexpected for people to hear all those things in one uh, resume if you will in one person but and I would have never guessed that I, I didn't even you know I mean Barstool didn't even really exist when I was looking at, right. at colleges and and where to go and uh and now here we are so it's been a wild ride I'm from Missouri St. Louis uh area a little place called St. Charles Missouri just uh west of St. Louis originally and then went to you know prep school like you said Choate Rosemary Hall uh in Wallingford Connecticut eventually went to Harvard lived in Boston for a while lived in New York for for a while now I live in Scottsdale so it's been a wild ride so let's go back to your days at St. Charles right off the I-70 first you were a blues fan growing up still am still still am and and we just talked about this Pronger you got to give a shout out to my yeah, boy Chris Pronger. Pronger number 44 baby and, and were you were you like an Ozzy Smith fan too oh yeah I mean, Ozzie Smith, Cardinals are huge in St. Louis. You know, the Cardinals are bigger than, than the Blues, and, and Cardinals are just massive in, in the entire Midwest, um, as people know. But we are a hockey family. Uh, we had season tickets to the St. Louis Blues growing up, the old arena, um, and then eventually the, the Scott Trade, the Keel Centers, all kinds of different names that it's been called over the years. Right. But, um, but, yeah, we've been huge Blues fans my whole life. My brother played college hockey. Uh, I played college hockey. My dad played hockey uh, in high school and was always a massive fan so hockey was always number one for us uh and we were massive blues fans first game we went to was against the montreal canadians and i called them the gladians uh, <laughs> who knows how old i was i was probably three or four but called them the gladians the whole night and told my parents about every single play the whole time so we've been a big hockey family pretty much our whole lives and when you were in high school i did, was it set that you were going to are going up to st charles you were going to go to connecticut the preparatory school to play hockey no it was crazy i actually was you know i was 
uh, four and five years younger than my older brother and sister, respectively. There's three of us. Um, so I was always a little bit on my own page in that regard. We were always close for Midwestern family. we got a huge family. Um, my mom's one of 12 kids. My dad's one of six kids. So we have an enormous kind of classic Midwestern family. So family was always huge. But being, again, four or five years younger than my older brother and sister, I was always a little bit on my own page. I did things kind of a little bit um, my own way. Hockey was huge, and I did really well in school. And so, you know, I eventually got to a point playing kind of travel hockey around the Midwest uh, where, you know, my my family said, and we were lucky enough where Jack O'Callaghan, who played on the 1980 Miracle on Ice team, uh, he married one of my mother's sorority sisters. And so he acted a little bit as, um, you know, advisor, if you will, kind of to, okay. and he's from the Boston area, uh, I believe BU's where he played. So he kind of advised me a little bit. He's like, you know, you do really well in school. You take hockey really seriously. Like, they make schools on the East Coast for this. There's prep hockey where they get recruited by really top schools, academic schools with really good hockey programs. Um, you'd get very little exposure to them, you know, playing kind of high school aged hockey out this way. Um, you should look into those schools. I knew nothing about them. I applied to, I believe, 10 schools. Okay. I got into one. Um, I got waitlisted at two more, and I got, I believe, just straight up denied by seven of them. And so I went out on a tour with my dad. We went out and checked out Choate, which is the one I got into, uh, and then uh, Deerfield Academy and um, one other, maybe it was Hotchkiss somewhere around there. Maybe it was Andover. I can't remember. But uh, but we, you know, I got into Choate, and I was like, you know, Dad, I'll do it for one year. I'll just go and check okay. it out. Um, it, it seems cool. It seems interesting. I don't know anything about the culture. And it was a culture shock for me going from the Midwest to kind of this a little bit more, you know, elitist kind of um, from an academic standpoint, Northeast prep school, um, getting recruited by these Ivy League schools. It was a completely foreign world to being from St. Charles, Missouri. Right. Um, <laughs> but I loved it in my in my kind of scouting trip. And within a few months of, of being out there and, and going to Choate, I, I was obsessed with it. I ended up doing my final three years of high school there. I got recruited, obviously, to go to Harvard, so it kind of changed my life. Um, but I loved it, even though I knew nothing about it until really the day I stepped on site for a, for a visit. And you answered my second question because I was going to ask you, if it wasn't Choate, where else it would have been? But you said you got denied. So I'm going to go. Got denied straight, almost What were your grades yeah. coming out of, uh, I mean, they're good, you know. I would say coming out of public school, and I put almost no effort in. Um, I, you know, I remember most days my mom would laugh, like I would just leave my my book bag and everything in my locker. I wouldn't even bring it home, and then I would just do homework throughout the day in each class for the upcoming class. So I, like, I was a bad student, as amazing as that sounds, because I, and just in where I was and the, whether it was the curriculum or whatever, it just wasn't that hard for me. I found it pretty, now I didn't take like AP classes really until I kind of got to Choate. Um, so just the normal curriculum, I could just kind of game the system in my way where I could, again, never really do a ton of work outside of actually being <laughs> at school and get through it that way. And then once I got to Choate, it was significantly more rigorous. Um, I was really committed to trying to get recruited to an Ivy League school. Um, I just kind of held that on such a pedestal and thought that'd be such a cool thing. It was so foreign again to the culture and kind of um, society that I was from in St. Charles, Missouri, that I just thought would be this incredible thing to achieve. And I knew on top of that, they had really good programs. Harvard was number eight in the country when I got recruited to play hockey there. Um, Yale ended up winning a national championship uh, around the time that I ended up leaving school. So they became a really good program and had a good history. Dartmouth, Cornell has been a phenomenal hockey program on the D1 level for a long time. So this combination for me of playing you know really good 
uh, hockey at a high level, having a chance to to potentially go to the NHL and then also get you know what's considered by most people to be the best collegiate education you could get. It just appealed to me on a massive level. You know, uh, uh, prep school, uh, high school seemed to be the best stepping stone to get there. So I was I was all in. Some of I've I've had one guest on from a prep school. She actually went to Colby College, played goalie, okay. and uh, I asked her the same question. I mean, was it hard leaving your family and going to a prep school? Yeah, I mean, definitely was. It was hard at first, but I'd say I got used to it pretty quickly. And you know, when you're the new kid at a, at a school, um, and it's not uncommon for kids to come in their sophomore year, which is when I did it at. Choate. I actually repeated my sophomore year, um, which is what I'd been advised by everybody to do. Uh, but, you know, you you still come in as a new kid. There's a lot of people that have been there for uh, a year and we're already friends. So it's always weird when you come in as a new kid in high school. High school is intimidating already with the cliques and the different friend groups. No matter who you are, um, you're insecure a lot. You're not really sure right. about stuff, which is funny to look back on now. I mean, I'm 34, so that's 20 years ago. Um, and now you're just, you know, you're so much more secure in who you are. You don't really care about all that little stuff. But at the time you do, it's your whole life. It's what you can, you know, you spend so much time thinking about that um, it was difficult for, yeah, leaving my family was tough. But I also knew that it was it was pretty cool and ambitious what I was doing. So even at a pretty young age, at 15, 16 years old, you know, it, it very much, I was very driven to do it well and to prove to even people, you know, friends back home would be like, what are you doing? Like, you're going yeah. where? What does that mean? Like, why, you know, to prove that, like, I was doing it for a really cool reason. So I was very driven. So let me ask you this, because for my audience that's listening, for someone that might want to go to a prep school, for sports, because we have that out in Southern California a lot. People are thinking uh, one of our friends' kids going to Hotchkiss. Yeah. One went to Hampton. Okay. Uh, so what advice would you give to that young 14-year-old that's thinking, should I just go to high school with my friends or should I go to a prep school back east? Advice to that student. What would you tell them? Yeah, I mean, I would say if you can... Um for me, I'm always going to present the when I do have a family and kids. I want to present the prep school option as an option to my kids. Now, I would never be someone that's going to um, ask or demand that they they take a certain route. They can do whatever they like, but I do believe that you know explore the different options. Um, and you might go to a campus. You might be able to sense that it's not for you. Um, but for me, you know, going out there, walking on campus at at Choate for the first time. Uh, I, I very much remember being like, this is, A, incredibly different than my current kind of experience going to just public schools in, in St. Charles, Missouri. Um, and B, it, it it was really cool. It was intriguing. There were different buildings. There was a, you know, there was a science building and a math building in a, in a high school. And I was like, that's shocking. I just went to a giant high school where everything was under one roof. And St. Charles West, where I'm from, everybody called it the prison because there's really no windows. And it just looked... And so that was cool. And there was an athletic center and there was, um, you know, there's humanities building and there's a dining hall and instead of just a cafeteria. And so for, for that, for me, it was really appealing. And so I, I would, the advice that I would give is go check them out because I didn't even know that they existed. I had thought, you know, is it a, a boarding school? Did you do something wrong? Is it like a corrective? 
institution that you need to go away? Like, what is, did you, you know, were you a bad student? Like, why, why would you right. go there? That was sort of the stereotype and the confusion that you didn't really know about until, again, you step on, on property and you, you know, there's a lot of diversity, which there wasn't a ton of in St. Charles, Missouri, where I was from at the time. Um, there's a lot of diversity, people from different places, people that spoke different languages, people dressed very differently, um, which, again, was very appealing to me once I stepped on campus that I, um, you know, previously in my life, I, I wasn't open to that because I didn't know it existed. You know, it was, it was, it was just, you, you know, you can only really know, especially at that age, kind of where you're from and the experiences that you've had, unless you can step on, on a campus and really see it, you wouldn't know. So I would say just try to expose yourself to as many of the options as you can and then make a decision from there. So you are the second guest from an Ivy League school. I had one on earlier from Penn. Okay. Uh, you're a student athlete, had many student athletes on. So I'm gonna go get into it from Choate. We're gonna get into, did, did you take the SAT, ACT? Obviously we're gonna get into how you got recruited to Harvard, but did, did you have to take the test as a student athlete? Yeah, I had, um, I took the SAT, I believe twice. I went through the whole, you know. Um, and Riggs, what was your score? I don't even know, to be honest with you. I want to say it was around. Start like, with the three? Um, well, we, the SAT is what we took, and it was right. what? It was out of 2400 when yep. I took it, which we were part of the new yes. age that was still like really fresh. Yes. And I think now it feels like people still even resort or resort back to yeah, we, we out of 1600. 1600. Right. So for me, it was like that weird window where it was out of 24. And I want to say I was around a 2100 or something okay. around there. I remember I did the um, writing well, which is makes sense because I ended up getting hired for what I do yes. now by writing. Um, and I could do the math pretty well. And then vocabulary, which was a big part of it, I just didn't know words, which is amazing. Like, I still somehow huh, feel like I just I struggle <laughs> with vocabulary, which is amazing. People are like, that's counterintuitive to talk for a living and wrote for a living. Um, but I, I remember just being like, I just can't figure a lot of this stuff out. Um, but I had to take the SAT. Uh, interestingly enough, I took it twice. The second time I took it, I had already gotten um, basically a letter of intent and essentially been accepted to Harvard, but I took it because the higher that I got on the SAT, it helped the, the team. Exactly. You, they could then recruit people with lower Academic scores. Academic performance index. Right. The API was very important. So I remember <laughs> them asking me to take the SAT a second time, even though I'd already gotten in. If you did better, and I did do a little bit better, and it helped, they would help the team. So the, the amazing part, again, was taking it the second time. Uh, I, I didn't need it on team a player. personal level. You're a team <laughs> player. It's funny. Okay. You're going you're gonna to love this because as a student manager at Long Beach State, they used my GPA for our semester grades. They're like, Fong, we need your GPA. We need your GPA. <laughs> I'm like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I remember, too, I was pretty highly recruited. So that gave me a little bit of a leeway in terms of my grades. And then your grades get weighted on the school that you come from or the, you know, in terms of high school. So Cho was very highly ranked, you know, prep school. Um, so that helped. And so I wasn't, I was never overly stressed about my grades. It probably helped a lot because I focused so much on hockey um, that, you know, that I was probably able to be loosened up a little bit in terms of the academics and, you know, and then terms of like my school looking back now I've always been really driven in stuff that I like and I've always really not cared that much in stuff that I don't like um and that was always 
I could get away with that. I remember in the public schools that I went to where it's not that I wasn't driven in terms of just not doing homework. I just didn't need to. So I was like, all right, fine. I'll just do right. schoolwork <laughs> during the day because I can get good grades and, and it's not a problem. And then it showed I really remember having to apply myself in a completely different way because the first few you know tests that we took, first few papers that we wrote, I was a terrible writer at the time. And uh, my, my teacher, my English teacher my sophomore year, um, sort of told me that it was like you know your your writing sucks and like here's we're gonna really work hard to make it better um, but here's you know I, I didn't really understand how to structure sentences properly I didn't understand how to put emphasis where you need to put emphasis on sentences um, and I but once he explained that to me it changed kind of opened my mind to um, reading and writing and how important it was and that you could learn a ton from reading outside of just the material but in terms of how an author actually you know, writes and structures their sentences and paints a picture and how and I was like, wow, that's such a fascinating world to me and writing powerfully and writing concisely and how you can say a lot more by writing more concisely than you can by writing a, a jumbled run on mm -hmm. stuff and learning all of that when I got to Choate was enormous in, in shaping kind of what I learned to care about academically um, because I, I would eventually go down more of a route, you know, I was a um, sociology major at, at Harvard and a lot of those because I didn't want to really take tests. I wanted to write. Right. I always I always liked writing papers. I always thought I could do pretty well by you know writing something um, solidly, even if I didn't necessarily know the material as well as I would like to know the material. Um, but yeah, so for me, you know, writing wasn't that important um, until I got to Choate and that sophomore year. I, I had a teacher that taught me so much about writing that it kind of changed my whole future. It's amazing because I tell my daughter who's at Washington and my daughter at Wisconsin my daughter at Washington went to a high academic school and it taught her how to write yep. which prepared her great for college and those parents listening now and students writing like English would be a great major because I, and then my daughter Julia I think the transition to college that writing and if you have that background like you did at Choate to Harvard yep. That's definitely going to help. Yeah, and I remember getting to Harvard and being really surprised at how terrible people were at writing that were really smart. And at Harvard, we would do, you know, we had um, large lectures like everybody that sometimes would have hundreds, sometimes thousands of people in the lectures. And then we would have little section classes that were anywhere between, you know, eight and maybe 20 people. So they were round table um, with your TAs where, you know, we would go around and have these very open discussions about the material. Uh, and these people would articulate and be so smart in class that I'd be intimidated by them. And then, and then I remember at certain times we would then um, proofread papers before we would submit them and go through. And I would, I would oftentimes look at this paper and who it was by, and look at the person. That person is so smart, and the way they think through things is so impressive. And this paper sucks. Be like they can't write. Like they and they clearly came from not clearly, but most often, you know, right. I, I would I guess just assume. I could be wrong, but they came, you know, clearly from a place where they just never had that education in writing even though they're an incredibly smart person that did really well with the system and they would progressively because they're so smart they would get through they would be fine they would learn they would get yeah. through and they would learn you know usually from these TAs or whoever I remember at some point they would learn to write and their writing would get so much better so quickly because there's fundamental things that they could learn that they hadn't previously but writing to me like you were just saying is such an important 
skill in that we do we email so much in the professional world or even in in high school and college you email so much you text so much that even though that gets um you know you think like oh you're just texting why would it matter if you're right like being able to communicate things with the right emphasis and um the right tone you know me i'm on social media so much i'm tweeting all the time uh you know the captions that you write on instagram and things like that any one write-off or one you could kind of write off but uh, as a body of kind of you um, expressing yourself on social media, publicly, um, professionally, through emails and text messages or Slack or whatever people use, like being able to write uh, and write well presents yourself so importantly to people um, and you do it so much more than you would think. You know, you're not writing books, you're not writing papers all the time, but you are writing all the Absolutely. time. And knowing how to do that well, I thought, was just so important. It's amazing how you say that because we talk about in this podcast how important the college essay is. Yeah. And I don't know if you even wrote a college essay to get in Harvard because obviously <laughs> and we'll get there. <laughs> but students and parents, and they're, I'll have this question. They'll say, hey, Michael, what do you think about this school? And they'll talk about well, I'll say, what's your unweighted GPA? They're like, uh, 4.3. First of all, you didn't listen because unweighted right. does not include that. <laughs> yeah. And I said, well, my kid's really, really smart, like every fucking every other kid yep, that's, that's out right. there. So it's going to come down to that essay and how you separate yourself. Totally. Right? Yeah. So you went to Harvard, 4% acceptance rate. Yeah. Take away hockey, yes or no? Are you getting in? No. <laughs> but I also, it, but I would say... Maybe if I had gone to through the high school process, knowing I didn't have hockey, then maybe. But like if I just showed up at the end, uh, you know, no. I mean, there's all these valedictorians from different schools, people with incredibly impressive and diverse backgrounds um, that have done such you know amazing things that that you know you really need at four percent acceptance rate and by the way that's four percent acceptance rate of people that think they can get into heart right that's what's like amazing about a lot of these schools is that you need a hook you know like you really do need a hook you need something that separates you outside of just being an incredibly you know intelligent inquisitive person which is a bummer that there's so few schools that people hold and that there are like the rankings and those types of things because you know, my biggest takeaway is that it doesn't really matter, right? Like, I going to uh, college and getting higher education, I think, definitely matters to a degree. But, you know, I learned, luckily, I guess, throughout my college process that I never thought the material that I actually learned in college was going to be determinant of my future professionally. I always, because I wasn't going to, you know, into a, a field that was so... Um, dependent on academia, right? Like if you go into the medical field and there's certain, you know, fields you go into where, yeah, that is going to matter. You need to be able to retain and, and utilize that information going forward for the rest of your right. life. But what I was doing, I, it wasn't. I'm always a pretty, more of a social creature. I always thought I'd get into something professionally that was more based on personality than it was on um, grades and, and academia that for me, you know, I kind of could ab- abandon pretty quickly in college being uber uber focused on retaining all the material it was more get through get you know try to get decent grades so that i could mostly graduate but i was very into learning a lot about me and making relationships with other people which you know connections have proven to be infinitely more important for me than precisely what i was learning and retaining what i was learning you hit it right on the dot because in every episode in every podcast i talk about just start something finish something 
because at the end of the day, it's a piece of paper and it's yep. what you do with it. And I always talk about just network, especially as a student athlete. I remember my coach after <laughs> games would say, all right, go up to the nugget. There's free food. And we're all thinking free food, right? But then there was Tyrell Mitchell, who actually is a successful lawyer out here in Arizona. Yeah. He would always dress up. He was our point guard. He would dress up in a suit. I'm like, what's T, do? What's, what's T doing? So he would go up to this nugget and you would see him hanging out with these older or wiser guys and here's us just just eating food yeah he was fucking networking yeah i mean that's what i tell every college potential guest on here that's talking just the network yeah and it's you know it's easy for me to say because i think it plays to my strengths right again i'm a pretty social creature i'm pretty extroverted so i like to chit chat with people um and it's and it's not necessarily that easy for everyone so i completely right. understand that it's like oh yeah they're just talking about that but that's you know for them what was difficult for me like test taking and grinding in the library and st things that i didn't enjoy might be for someone else what they genuinely enjoy and feel comfortable doing and kind of the the schmoozing or networking might not be but what i what i've learned a lot more is that like networking doesn't just mean you know throwing on kind of a suit and 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 schmoozing or being like there's you know be comfortable in who you are and be be real. I think the world in the last, you know, 10, 15 years has gotten so much better um, at at being uh, accepting of of so many different backgrounds and types of people, um, and almost that different is cool. Like to, you know, and that's great. And like people want to learn a lot about you and what you do and what separates you, what makes you interesting whereas it, it feels like it used to be you had to hide certain things and almost be conforming and do this to kind of network well and be appealing and i luckily i think that's we're progressing a little bit more away from that yeah um, and that's a good thing and that should make people more confident in those scenarios and settings to kind of network and meet people and and try not to even approach it like you're networking try to approach it like you're just trying to meet people and that you know you get happiness in life out of forming relationships with other people and if that helps you professionally great i think just being genuine Right. Being sincere. Totally. Right. Just being yourself. Right. Big so. time. Because yourself is, you know, if like that's who people are going to love you for and like you for and be um, more willing to help you out down the road for is like, oh, yeah, I like that person's real. You know, very, very rarely have I ever heard somebody, you know, they'll be like, oh, yeah, I actually um, remember meeting that person and they came off as uh, so perfectly professional that I would like, no, it's like, Oh, that person was great. They're right. Like, that person was so sincere. That story they were telling me, man, that was, you know, and like, that's what people remember and what they're more likely to, if they want to work with you in the future, they want to work with people that they like that are real and raw and genuine. And, and so I, that's kind of my biggest advice. And again, luckily I think that that played to my strengths in colleges where, you know, the academics didn't like my grades in college sucked because I, that wasn't clearly what I ended up liking to do. I became driven towards other things. Um, and I let my grades slip, but luckily I ended up in a profession where that wasn't going to matter. Someone right. wasn't going to like check my GPA, um, and and they really and don't check your G right. They don't they check don't. your GPA. Um, <laughs> they don't, and almost nowhere will really really care. And and you know so that's and it's a little bit of a mixed message to send where it's like oh should I just never go to class? Like no, that's that stuff's important and being able to prove that you know you were able to. Um, stick to stuff and that you showed up you know my dad always taught me like 90% of life is showing up um, and he was 100% right where it's like show up and be there and be present because things will happen around you and just being in the mix and being involved and stuff will lead to more opportunities than than being absent by far and so that you know grades do matter in that sense and that 
you know, you were there, you were able to get through the curriculum curriculum, and you were able to, you know, work with your professors and be flexible and all those things, that definitely matters. But like you said, nobody's going to check your GPA. No. Like, wow, I love that person. Thought they were really sharp. But this number's a little too low. That's that's just never really going to happen. Right, right. And, and it's funny because the people, like the guests that are on my podcast, I say, actually, college, you're going to learn to live on your own, be responsible. And at the end of the day, Let's talk about it. You're going to learn how to party yep. and, and, and get that piece of paper along the side. So a lot of my audience and followers, especially where I live in Orange County, we call them the sweatshirt brand. Yeah. Okay. The fucking UCLA, <laughs> oh, yeah. USC's, yeah, yeah. Stanford, Cal, Harvard, uh, you name it, Georgetown, Notre Dame. These are all the colleges that everybody thinks they're getting into. Yeah. Harvard. Tell me one thing when you went there that you really didn't like? Oh man, it was so incredibly competitive uh, in the sense, and not in, you know, I thought at that age in an unhealthy sense. There's, I'm an incredibly competitive person. Uh, my whole kind of uh, childhood was based on being competitive against my brother, whether it was video games, golf, hockey, running down the street, being the first person at the dinner table. Literally, no matter what we did, it was all about being competitive. But this was competitive in an unhealthy way where people measured you know, the success of themselves as how good was their internship, how good was the job offer that they got. And not good in, in, in the, in, again, in my opinion things that are actually important in life but good in status and money um and those things you know i've learned again just aren't what's truly important and what's going to um eventually kind of deliver people to a place of happiness and, and acceptance and genuinely enjoying their life day in and day out and i thought that the biggest negative once i got there was just how ruthlessly competitive people were in terms of getting the right finance job and if somebody else got it people weren't happy for them they were mad and jealous and pissed and and so that really turned me off um and I think a lot of those people now, and, you know, it's easy to get caught up in. I'm sure I got caught up in quite a right. bit. You don't think of yourself as, as valuable as you truly are because this other person's getting all this praise. And then at the lunch table, everyone's like, do you hear so-and-so got this, you know, internship? I can't believe that. And then they would actually, like, knock that person down and talk shit about that. But you're just like, what are we doing here? <laughs> it's like, why why does that matter? Go do what you love to do or go, you know, whatever. So um, so that was by far, I would say, the biggest thing that I kind of hated was like, oh, man, this, this culture is um, – is is competitive um, to too much of an extreme at times, and competitive in a way that people that like that competition was focused on things that I don't think people should care. And, and so, if you're out there listening, you think high school's competitive, and you actually yeah. have an inkling to go to Harvard. Good luck. But let's switch on a positive. Tell me something that you like. When I think of Harvard. And people that get in, I don't think they want people to fail. I really, I, we, my friend and I talk about that all the time. If you're smart enough to get in, they're going to want to see you succeed. Tell me some positives. What did you like about Harvard? Man, I thought that the staff at Harvard, uh, top to bottom, was just in it for you. I thought that almost every professor I had, TA I had, uh, people that, that worked you know, at the institution at Harvard would do anything they could to watch you succeed. Um, and, you know, our department head in sociology, David Ager, who's like the nicest guy on the planet, and he just would work with, you know, we are student athletes, right? You went in being a little bit nervous that like, 
hockey and we're on the road and they know we got in for hockey so they're gonna hold that against you and then is the professor's gonna make it really difficult and they, and they for the most part every one of them loved it and they totally understood and they were really inquisitive about you know um, what it was you were doing even if they didn't understand the game fully and if you're gonna be on the road for three or four days they wanted to kind of understand why not in a um critical way but in a in a genuinely inquisitive way of like they want to learn more about you and how that's affecting your life and what they can do to help so the the biggest takeaway was that you know you'd almost feel like you're going to get to a place like harvard that is this you know big bad harvard and the prestige and the rankings and the wow it was so hard to get in right that they must be this must be brutal up here right. like if it's that hard to get in then what are they really going to be like once you're there um and it wasn't it was so uh, accepting and they they really wanted to develop minds right and they didn't expect you to be perfect when you got there even though they expect you to be perfect to get in there um, once you were there it was very much like all right now you're kind of one of us you're part of our you know you're almost coming under our wing and we really want to help you in a lot of ways and so that was for me just incredibly comforting because you go in so nervous you know am i worthy i know so many people that didn't get into harvard that were devastated they're like am i really better than them and now i'm going to show up you know so you thought so much about those weird things that again now 20 years later 15 years later for me looking back that uh i remember being very comforted at just how kind of cool and accepting and helpful people were did you live in the dorms all how many years whole time how was that awesome i mean it, it was cool and was For, it student athlete dorms? Or uh, just no, were you mixed? No, you I mean we essentially what you do is your freshman year at Harvard, you are put mostly randomly with people. You can't request a roommate. Um, so you, coaches didn't put you with another player. They weren't allowed to. Okay. So you, everybody lived with different folks and you might get put in a block of, you know, you would kind of um, submit your preferences of you know, I want to live alone. I want to live with four people. I want to live with eight people. And then you kind of rank them in terms of what was most important to you. And you didn't really know what you were going to get. So I ended up living on a floor uh, with, I think, you know, four other people. And I kind of had like a half single, half not, where it was we all shared bathroom and we were kind of connected. And there were people on my floor. And, you know, one guy was a swimmer. Um, somebody else was an archer. And and you had and then you know we had two or three people that didn't play sports at all, and it was a good mix. And then we would get you know some guys on the hockey team who obviously became my close knit group, who you know they they would live with a golfer and a football guy and then a, a non athlete. So Harvard was very committed to your freshman year. Everybody lived in the dorms and um, and people really mixed it up. Obviously trying to promote sort of. Um, you know, integration amongst everyone where you could integrate among different friend groups or sports or whatever. And that ended up proving to lead to lifelong friendships with different right. people that otherwise we would have probably never known each other. Well, and you probably keep in touch with some of your college teammates. I think two of them in the uh, professionals is Danny Biega and Alex Killer that played yeah. on your team, right? Yep. I mean, did you know back then, like, and, and I'm going to let you answer because I had two teammates that went into the pros. Yeah. But playing then, did you know, like, they're going to the next level? Yeah, I mean, you have, yeah, especially over time, right? Over a few years, you know, people can get hot and stretches and play really well for a few months, sure, have a really good year even. But, you know, people that just over two, three, four years of college really stand out, um, you know, and we would learn too, being so involved in the game, having to be such a big part of your life, you kind of understood what was going to translate to the professional game and what wasn't, what wasn't. Um, Alex Kloran was, you know, the best player against everybody that we, every team that we played even. I think if okay. we were, a better hockey team a few of those years that he would have been a serious contender for the Hobie Baker um, 
you know, for the best player in all of college hockey because he was that good. He stood out so much, and now he's won two Stanley Cups and, you know, makes uh, millions, about four or five million dollars a year playing for the Tampa Bay Lightning. Um, and we kind of predicted that. We, you know, not necessarily have that much success, but that he would have a lot of success at the professional level. Alex Biega, Danny Biega, both those guys. You know, we had we had three brothers that came in: um, Alex, Mike, and Danny. All the Biega okay. brothers. Um, Alex and Danny went on to play, you know, professional hockey uh, in the NHL at times, in the AHL at times over the years. And you know, they were incredibly driven, incredibly focused, really good leaders um, that became captains of the team. That you know, we kind of knew. We're going to do really well on the professional level. So it was interesting to see the difference in their approach, you know, uh, versus um, everyone else versus myself. Like I kind of learned pretty quickly on that. I didn't think I had what it took to be what they were. You know, I really liked the social scene. I had never drank until um, college. I'd never really once partied ever until I got to college. And I loved to do it. I loved having drinks with people. I loved just kind of socializing, like I said, and, kind of figure out how to balance that with trying to you know essentially be a professional athlete uh i just i liked it too much i i gave in if you will too much or whatever it was versus some other guys who just didn't and there's always going to be exceptional people that like went on to play professional hockey or professional athletics yes that also could party really hard but for me it was like i really needed to get stronger i really needed to put 100 percent focus into my hockey career if I was going to really stand out and I had a lot of skills but I was pretty skinny and wasn't as strong as a lot of other people and that it became such a much more physical game in college than it was in high school um, that I needed to really change some things about my game that there were stretches I went through for months where it was I was doing it I was all in but then there were also stretches where I'd be I'm not getting the playing time I deserve and instead of responding to that you know with with being 100% all in and, and being sort of um, persistent through it, you know, a lot of times it'd be like, I'm just going to hang out for a little bit and have a good time, um, which, again, led to kind of eventually the career that I have now and my strengths and, and personality or whatever it might be. But, but yeah, those guys were different, you could tell. So I'm going to take it. Were you third line or fourth line? Don't well, take that the wrong way. No, I was always <laughs> weird in that, I'm again, I was a skill guy. I was a scorer. So I would either be – in the stands, like literally not even dressing, okay. or I'd be like a first or second line guy and a power play guy because if I was going to slot in, I was very less like unlikely to be uh, in the corner grinder, defensive shutdown guy, and which is more of a third or fourth liner typically. If I was in, I was guy that would play with more of the skilled players, and they'd be relying on us to generate a lot of offense. So if I was in the lineup, I would usually be in more of a scoring type of role. So I would, have, which is amazing. So I would go stretches months where I wouldn't get in the lineup, and then I'd go two or three months where I'd play a lot, and I'd be on some of the more scoring lines, which is amazing. And I'm going to assume you were fast then. I was fast. It, and it's funny because my son played hockey, and uh, I'm going to bring up Pronger again because he yeah. would say, Pronger, you, nowadays you don't have to be big. You, It's all about quick yeah. and how you take that check into the board. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? So he would tell me about – He's like, because he used absorb. to be a little more clutch and grab back then. Yes. You know, with Bronger and Darian Hatcher. I remember these guys that were big, strong defensemen, and they could more, they could grab you, they could hold you a little bit in terms of like in the corners and against the boards, and it became a lot more difficult for the, you know, the smaller, faster guys to succeed. And then the NHL changed their rules dramatically in probably the mid 2000s, which when I was in college. Um, and it became a lot more, you know, the Sidney Crosby's. You got Paul uh, Korea flying around for the Ducks. And Paul Korea, Patrick Kane, you know, these guys, even John. Um, Flurry. Yeah, like Jonathan Taze. Like these guys weren't as big. They were, you know, more smaller skill guys that were able to succeed with the changes in the rules. So, so yeah, ultimately, you know, um, 
those guys have done a lot better now that <laughs> that like progress had you can't hold them you can't you can't cross check them as much they defend a lot of the skill players a lot what's the one thing that you learned from coach donato that you'll take away that, that you live today by him oh man you know i think we just did um we did a really good job as um a team of formulating friendships among one another that we still have to this day you know that still really drive a lot of our our buddies trips are uh, a bachelor party if somebody's getting married the weddings that we go to um you know the people that we keep in touch with frankly the, the fantasy football leagues that i'm in or you know whatever it might be are those guys that we became really really good friends with even though we were competing for spots on the team um so you know he was donato was always more of like kind of a player's coach i know his reputation in the nhl he was always kind of one of the boys boys so he really um he you know he made us laugh a lot and and kind of um, provided an opportunity for us to understand that, you know, the teammates were kind of going to be your friends, not just for four or five years or however long you're at school, but more for probably the rest of your life. And that ended up being incredibly true. That's so true. You talked about that. I talk to my coaches all the time and certain teammates. There's some that I don't talk to. And you do like the big group messages, right? They're yeah, like oh 20. Yeah. There yeah. has to be. Are you, I'm going to see since you're the social, outgoing extrovert, because they call me the ringleader. of, And I was only a fucking manager. <laughs> Who's the ringleader, like, uh, out of your team in your era? Like, oh, man. You know, we got, um, I would say in our, in, in real time, Alex Biega, who was my, you know, class at Harvard, ended up being the captain for our team. Um, was the ringleader, but he was largely like a, a leader by example. You know, he was always in the gym. He always ate the right stuff. He was just committed to being the best, literally the best hockey player he could possibly be. And when somebody leads by example like that, you know, it's it's contagious. You're like, well, if Alex is doing it, like we gotta, <laughs> we, we gotta follow. Yeah, we gotta really <laughs> kind of follow it and keep that going, um, which we clearly have. And then, you know, I would say like in the in the golf world because we do a lot of golf trips and golf's what I cover for a living. So, you know, golf trips, I'm the ringleader a lot because I've been to so many different resorts. I love planning like golf trips. One of my favorite things to do. Um, whereas if you know we're doing something that's a little bit more like hockey focus, you know, my buddy Chad Morin who okay um, became a lawyer. Uh, went to uh, eventually went to U Chicago Law School. Now works for a really cool company in the New York area who has become a big golfer as well. But he uh, he worked actually a little bit when he was a lawyer as kind of a help for a few different hockey teams, Chicago Blackhawks and whatnot, because he's obsessed with kind of pro hockey. His younger brother Jeremy Morin played hockey for a while, uh, professional hockey for a while. So you know they've been obsessed with hockey more so than I have since college. Um, so if it's going to a game or, or something like that, or even when we played in New York, we played well men's league hockey. You know, kind of being the ringleader of that stuff. So it's kind of varied depending on what we're doing. So you put your skates on still? Up until COVID, I did. I skated twice a week in New York. Um, which was kind of my version of, of working out. I don't, I don't work out. I refuse to go to the gym. I haven't gone to the gym for 10, 15 years since whenever I was in college. I just never have enjoyed it. So <laughs> getting my kind of legitimate workout, hockey's like the best workout you possibly get. So I, I skated twice a week, um, you know, in New York, which was awesome. At Chelsea Pier, we played. And then, you know, the pandemic hit, and they shut all that stuff down, and I haven't gotten back into it since. You talk about Harvard, let's, and we're going to transition. Let's talk about some of your favorite places in Boston, because when we when we do this podcast, if if Mr. and Miss Bazonian are in town, yeah, where where are they taking you and all your friends to eat? Where where was like the go to where you're like, Mom, Dad, let's go eat here? We would go to a place called John Harvard's a lot, uh, which was sort of it was this 
um, cool bar. They had a bunch of local beers and such that they were brewed down there. And then they had pretty good just like bar food. Like we're not being from St. Charles, we're not very fancy. So we go to somewhere where we can get, you know, a couple beers on draft. They always had games on, but it was also cool in that it was set kind of down. You had to walk down underneath a few spots in Harvard Square. Um, kind of the main center in Harvard okay. Square. You had to walk down underneath, and it was a little bit like dark old wood. I had a lot of booths and and whatnot that it felt pretty old school in there. Called like I said, John Harvard's. That was a great little spot. But again, they mostly had just kind of um, standard bar food. Um, was was mostly mostly their food option. So we go there a lot. What's your favorite bar when you were in college going to? We didn't go to a ton of bars. As as nuts as that sounds, I mean, Cambridge was incredibly expensive. Um, and college students, you really didn't have any money. And then downtown Boston was even more expensive and further away. And even then, I mean, 2006, 2007, 2008, like Uber wasn't a thing. So how are we going to get there? We're going to cab it, whatever. So we didn't go to a ton of bars. We mostly do kind of house party type things or drink at finals clubs on campus. Okay. Way, way more than we would ever go to bars. So let's talk about that social scene. So if that's kind of the Harvard, if they're not going to Cambridge or going out to Boston, yeah. and there's not really a Greek system at Harvard that's, yeah. that's, that's recognized, what's the partying like as a smart Harvard kid? <laughs> <laughs> we were, it was mostly finals clubs driven. I believe there's seven or eight finals clubs at Harvard. I was in the Delphic Club, um, which was you know founded in the uh, early 1900s. I believe 1903 is when the clubhouse that we kind of utilized was built. Um, and we would you know throw parties there. We would have lunch there a lot, which would be just kind of with our with the members of the club. I think we had about right around 100, you know maybe 100 and some odd members, right around 100 maybe. Um, and you know we would we would throw parties there, but we would do. I remember we would do a Thursday night dinner. Um, every Thursday, that would be um, a coat. You would need, I believe, a coat and tie for dinner, and it was just our members of the club. Uh, and you know, it would be it depended what the dinner was. It'd be pasta sometimes. It'd be like a steak night sometimes. It'd be salmon night sometimes. But we would have Thursday night dinner. I believe we do like um, we do like apps and cocktails at six, and then I think we'd do dinner at seven. And then after dinner, there'd be a little bit of a hangout for two or three hours. And around like 10 o'clock, we would really open it up. Uh, we had like a back courtyard that if it was nicer out, we would use the back courtyard a lot. We could invite anybody over. Um, then we had a basement that we would use. Um, and we would just kind of, th you know, throw parties and socialize that way. And then the other clubs, you know, we knew members from the hockey team or whoever would be members in other clubs. So we'd get invited to some of their parties and have a good time. And then the dorms were actually pretty cool in that we – Different groups, you know, like after your freshman year, you could choose who to block with. Got it. You could block with, I believe, up to like 16 people, depending on the spot. And and the dorms, you know, I think there were 12 academic um, or residential houses, they would call them, at Harvard. And each residential house had its own dining hall. So it had its own dining hall, its own library, its own gym, and its own, obviously, dormitories where you could live in. So they were all really old and really cool in that they had so much history and they'd been there and everybody kind of lived on campus. So they would throw a lot of cool parties there, too, where, you know, if you were in a block of eight, you would usually have a pretty big common space and then little, like, eight different bedrooms or four different bedrooms where people double bunked it off of that where you could use that common space and the, the university actually wanted you to use that common space to kind of drive the social scene so it was a mix of kind of finals clubs and dorm parties hungover where are you having breakfast what was like your favorite place to go to oh man we would order a place called ak's uh, or, or we would order there was a place in in is it um, where is it cambridge or is it in boston so there was a place in south boston after i actually that was after i moved out of school 
um, that was called AKs. There's a place called Half Shell that we would order from in Cambridge all the time. Um, they would bring us breakfast sandwiches if you needed breakfast sandwiches. And then dinner, they had these buffalo chicken calzones oh, that, that we would sounds play. sounds so good. Man, we would play Halo. We'd play like three That's on your game, three. Oh, yeah, it? we'd play like three on three Halo against each other all the time. Okay. What's up, brother? How we doing? Good. How good. Doing? We're live. How you doing? No, no I appreciate that's what, it. That's what we do. I appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> um, so we would play like three on three or four on four Halo all the time. Halo 2 was our, or no, Halo 3 was our game most of the time. Okay. Um, and we would order like Half Shell, which again, they had phenomenal food, but they, one of those places, they had everything on the menu, literally everything. You could order breakfast sandwiches, you could order like a full, you know, eggs and bacon and, oh. and, and hash browns. So we do that when you're hungover. And then you could get pizza. They had really good pizza. Um, you could get like all kinds of pasta dishes. You could get, um, you could get like a fettuccine Alfredo. You could get the buffalo chicken calzones. You could get all kinds of stuff. So we would usually after hockey, and again, this is when we're college athletes, where you could eat non. You needed to eat nonstop. Carbs. Oh. You gotta carb up, Riggs. You got to so carb dude, up. We would do practice and video and workout, and then go to the dining hall after because we could eat for free. Clearly, and then we still three or four hours later would be starving and playing Halo till nine or ten o'clock at night. So then we would order half shell all the time. Late night munchies. Like, where did you go, like, after midnight, before the, before the hangover, right? Before, yeah. Where, where are we going? Place called uh, Hong Kong, the Hong Kong. We called the Kong. They had Let dumplings. Guess, Asian? Oh, yeah. They had <laughs> just phenomenal, like, late-night Chinese food. So they had, like, dumplings, crab rangoons that were fantastic. Uh, and then they had, like, their first floor was obviously their, like, dining floor. And then okay. they had a second floor that was a bar. And they had these scorpion bowls. So they'd give you as many straws as you wanted. And they go up there, man, and you get these big-ass scorpion bowls, and we would do scorpion bowl races. And we'd do, like, four-on-four four scorpion bowl races where crazy. you just try to pound that scorpion bowl as fast as you can. Those will get you real fucked up in college. You're competitive. <laughs> How many times did you win in that? Oh, we would win <laughs> all the time. We would just dominate those all the time. So it was a good scene they had going on at the Kong because you get late-night food and then go up to the bar uh, and do scorpion bowl races till late in the morning. So we had a good time at the Kong. I love that. Now, I, I'm not trying to transition this or tee it up, but Harvard, I can ask this question how many how many fucking asians are there there oh yeah i mean it was <laughs> it big time i mean it was a big you know and especially luckily i was um introduced to a, a significantly more diverse culture when i went to choate because you know coming from again st charles missouri like it's just not that diverse um and especially you know with like uh asian culture that just wasn't it very common at all for us going to public schools in Missouri like incredibly uncommon significantly more common at Choate which is the first time again I was introduced to kind of a lot of different people that were from a lot of different backgrounds um, and then Harvard was a huge part of it and you know we would get a lot of like tourism that would come through there too a lot and you could tell you would get you know entire buses of folks from different um, Asian cultures that were kind of there to check out Harvard and I you know you could you could tell that clearly like Harvard and, and Ivy League schools and top kind of ranked academic institutions in the U.S. are held on such a pedestal, you know, over there in Asia, in a lot of the different cultures over there. And, you know, they took it so seriously. So, um, so yeah, it was, it was wildly um, diverse, which, again, luckily I wasn't shell-shocked by that because I had been, you know, eased into it a little bit at Choate. Right. Um, but, but it was awesome. From, it was coming one thing, from Midwest St. Charles. Totally. It's so different. And it's yeah. one thing that I, you know, I loved experiencing that. And I loved how 
you know, different and unique it was compared to what I grew up with that I always just found different people's backgrounds completely fascinating, meaning their parents. And a lot of times if their parents did, you know, English wasn't their first language and, and things like that. I found that so interesting that, you know, their children who became like my friends would right. be in this in a completely different culture, you know, cause I thought here I am going from Missouri to like Connecticut and then from Missouri to Boston that like, I thought I went through a little bit of a culture change. Like imagine what their lives are like being here and maybe English isn't even their first language. Maybe Absolutely. it's their second language or third language. And when they speak to their, you know, parents, when they call home, you know, they're speaking in a different language. They might be speaking in Japanese or Chinese or, or Spanish or whatever. And that that was so different um, of an upbringing that I had that I always, I was always fascinated by that. And I found it really cool that people could do that. Absolutely. This is a question I always like to ask. So the alumni network. Yeah. How many are there of Harvard's alum worldwide? <laughs> oh man. Um, I, you know, these are a couple ending questions. You might not know it. You may know. I it have no idea, but I would say like, it is something that, people at Harvard take incredibly seriously and you know we get I get emails nonstop about the alumni network about you know if you're in this city this city this city you know you can call that you can call whoever so I have no clue um 400,000 is that right over 400,000 think about that that's crazy that's huge that's crazy it's an enormous network and people you know people are great about it again it goes back a little bit to when I was first kind of stepped on campus and getting acclimated with my Harvard experience of how surprised I was by how kind of cool and helpful and accepting everybody was. The alumni network's the exact same way. Um, no matter where you go, you know, people have been so cool about um, trying to help you out in any way they can help you out, going out of their way to do it, you know, and everybody's busy nowadays. People are so busy. That, that always yep. struck me as people have these busy lives. They got families, they got jobs, they just got endless stuff going on that then they're going to go out of their way to help other people because of where they went to college. I always found that really, really cool. I think, you know, in my profession, being a, a Barcelona sports, you know, personality and podcast, podcast host and things, I don't, I haven't found myself leaning on it as much as other people probably do and more kind of traditional verticals that they go into. Um, but it is an, an amazing network. You know, I'm not going to mention, you know what? I will fucking mention the schools. So there's like two or three schools where you know within 10 seconds where they graduated from because they tell you, <laughs> yeah. right? Uh, how does Harvard come up? How does the accent in Cambridge, how, how do you... How do you bring that Man, up? Yeah, it's always interesting because I always say there's no way to tell somebody you went to Harvard and not come off like an asshole. <laughs> it's impossible. Because if somebody says, if you're in a conversation and you just bring it up on your own, um, right? Like if somebody goes to Michigan or Wisconsin or somebody goes to Boston University, like, yeah, by the way, I, I have a good amount of experience. I was in Boston. I went to BU. They're like, oh, that's awesome. Great. Right. If you're like, oh, yeah, I have a good amount of experience. I went to college in Boston. I, w I went to Harvard. They're like, oh, okay. <laughs> and you're like, no, I'm just like fucking telling you where I went to college. And then, you know, if they ask, um, it's the same way. If they say like, "Oh, where'd you go to school?" and you say Harvard, they go, "Oh, okay, Harvard. wow." And you're like, "No, I just, I just answered the question. Like, I don't know what else to do." And then if you go the roundabout version, that everybody always laughs about, like, "Oh, I went to a small school in Cambridge. I went to here," and you give them like the long play, and then eventually they find out they're like, "Oh, are you like you thought I couldn't handle that you went to Harvard? So you had to try to hide." It. <laughs> There's just no way to not right. come off like an asshole by telling people you went to Harvard. So I usually will just say it. Somebody starts talking about college, like, "Oh yeah, like where'd you go? I should be like Harvard." And I just kind of just like get just it see out what of the response. Yeah, just get it, get it out of the way. <laughs> it's always like awkward for some reason. Well, it's funny because the three schools <laughs> I, and my friends will kill me because they graduated. Yeah, Georgetown's one. Yeah, Notre Dame's the other one, and Stanford's the other one. Like you know, those are okay. the three schools where you're like, 
Yeah, uh, Notre Dame sticks out for me. Stanford sticks out for yeah. me for sure. <laughs> right? Yeah, for whatever reason, I do feel like the Yale, like Yales and Dartmouths aren't as bad, but like Harvard, those yeah, oh yeah, people that go to Harvard, they they tell you fast. So. This is a great transition as we now get into what you're doing now. And I always end and I'll ask the student because now they graduate college and then they're going to be working and they don't even know who their fucking CEO is. No, no clue. Do you know (laughs) who your president at the time was at Harvard or even your former president or the uh, the president Harvard now or your former president when you were there? Faust was there. Yeah. Yes. True Faust. Oh, yeah. was there. Um when I was there, I have no clue who our president now. Who was it? Summers was before him. It's Lawrence. Or, uh, God, I wrote this down because I always before. have. To, it's uh, Lawrence Baco or Bacow. Okay. So I don't even know, but I'm like, okay, he'll know. He'll know Drew. <laughs> yeah. So we. Yeah. So um, who who's been who's it is since? I have no clue. Just absolutely no yeah, clue. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't know that like that should be that important for people like. Who really cares? No. <laughs> it, it, you really. It, the reason why I will ask a student, because now, right, like if I said, who's the CEO of Barcel Sports? Yeah. Right? I mean, Eric like, Nardini, yeah, right? You should know who you're interviewing. Like, I have this con- interview with so-and-so, and I used to, I interviewed for a lot and yeah. hired a lot of salespeople. They'll, they'll say, um, do you have any questions for me? And Riggs, you'll love this one. I said, yeah, who, I used to work for Paychecks. So I said, yeah. who's our CEO? They're like, oh, man. It's at the top of my tongue. Like, I can't believe I don't know that. Like, I'm going <laughs> to take it. You didn't go look on the website. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Like I told you, failing to prepare is preparing to fail. Like, yeah. no, you're no, fucking definitely, shit. Definitely. And, like, those, there's definitely, you know, stuff that, right, that you just genuinely, generally should know because the reason you should know it is because people want to, people want to know and see that you're interested and passionate about what you were there for, right? Like, if you're there for going to that school, then yes, you should, like, why do you want to go to the school so badly? Is it just because it's high in the rankings or is it because of the ethos of the school? And in theory, that should go back to who is the president and the leadership and what direction are they taking the school in? I didn't care about that stuff. I just wanted to go to Harvard because it was called Harvard. That was that was literally, like, my reasoning. And now looking back, I find that very childish. And looking back, I understand you know, what we were going through at the time and, and how competitive I was for, like I just discussed earlier, like a lot of the wrong reasons where I was just like, you know, I remember I put like um, Harvard 2010, like in my, um, in my AIM messenger bio, because it, I was like braggadocious. I'm like, yeah, I got accepted. I'm going to Harvard. Like, what's up, motherfuckers? But that's what I cared about then. And I've learned so much since about like how unimportant that actually is right like where you right where you go to school isn't going to be about the name of the school that you went to it might get you an interview especially early on you. yeah it's about you it's about the people that you are going to meet it's about because that you know the college age part of your life is for most people going to be the most impressionable part of your life where you learn the most about who you are you you mostly will keep i, I keep in touch with way more of my college friends than i do my high school friends um so that is what's going to be important. It's very little going to be the shield under the school that, that you went to or the mascot or whatever, um, even though it's so incredibly important at the time. And there there is an element of certain jobs where, again, I always have said, like, the Harvard thing will always get you an interview after school. It'll always get you an interview somewhere. What you do with that is up to you, and that's an advantage for sure, but it's not as big of an advantage as people think. It's not the end-all, be-all. It's really about, like, you, what you like, the, whether it's the... Um, 
environment that you're going to want to go to school in, whether it's, um, you know, the climate that you're going to go to school in, whether it's a different part of the country that you would love to go to school at because yep. you just aren't familiar with that. You've always been curious about it, whether it's the type of people, if it's a liberal arts school or what direction that go, like those things are going to matter way more than the name of the school. So you graduate Harvard, you're working five years at Chase Technologies as a consultant. Yeah. Now let's talk about your road and transition to Barstool, because obviously did your Harvard degree get you the interview with Dave? Or I'm going to say you probably were hustling like what I've been trying to do for like the last year. Yeah, I mean, Dave, interestingly enough, Dave said afterwards that he was impressed by the Harvard thing for sure, but he didn't know that at all when I got his attention. Dave, so I started reading Barstool in, I believe, 2008, okay. um, when it was just Dave Portnoy, who's my boss now. Um, writing and a few other people that helped him here and there but it was mostly Dave Portnoy ran the whole show and he mostly just wrote blogs he wrote like 15-20 blogs a day um, which is amazing to look back on now but it was almost no vid video it was no real podcasting um, merchandise they, they sling t-shirts but nowhere near the scale that we do now or anywhere close to that it was mostly Dave Portnoy sitting at home with his wife at the time and like writing funny one paragraph blogs essentially commentary and reaction to what was going on in the world. It could be award shows, it could be sports, um, it could be pop culture, it could be mostly anything in the world. And we, again, being in Boston at the time, where Barstool was pretty big, we would read it in the library all the time, we, and we found it hilarious. We would share articles with each other, blogs with each other all the time. So I started reading Dave in like 2008 and just thought it was really funny, and then 2009, um, he expanded, he hired... Um, Kevin and Keith, who KFC and K Marco, who started the New York branch of Barcelona. Right? So that was a big step where it was like right. really city focused at the time and went from just a Boston site to all of a sudden Dave's uh, welcoming and implementing and hiring people to run like a rivalry Barstool site. What was that? And then eventually Big Cat came on who run, ran Chicago and now Big Cat's one of the biggest, you know, figures in all of sports media and KFC's huge and K Marco was our editor in chief for a long time. Um, but the company was very, very, very small at the time. We read it, we thought it was really funny, and then they started to evolve, started to evolve, and around 2013 or 14, you know, I was working sales gigs, and I thought, you know, I didn't like what I was doing, I didn't think it was for me full-time, and for my future, and I loved what they were doing. I was like, man, these guys are like, they're just funny, and they're, they're right. telling jokes about different things, they don't take themselves too seriously, I love that. I just find it really entertaining, and I think I'd be really good at that. So I just Googled how to create a blog. Just started my own blog, and I wrote over a 1,000 blogs, and I just started emailing Dave Portnoy. I just guessed what his email address was. I didn't even know. I just kind of guessed what his email address was. If it hasn't been rejected, was. it's going, one of those things <laughs> going through. <laughs> yeah, <that's> right. <laughs> right. And I would just kind of do different variations and just kept sending, and eventually I believe his email got like, you know, it was leaked or something. It was pretty clear that that was it, so I just kind of emailed Dave all the time. I probably emailed him over 100 times, maybe 150 times, I would guess. And one day in 2016, so Barstool got bought out in early 2016, or it was announced that Barstool got bought out in early 2016 by the Churning Group, Peter Churning, mm -hmm. who's a big Hollywood producer, um, where they bought 51% of the company, and they were essentially moving the whole company to New York under a main office, under one main umbrella. They were pumping a bunch of money into it, and therefore they were looking for more talent because they were going to try to grow as a company. And so I ramped up my efforts, and in early 2016, I got an email back one Tuesday night from Dave Borden. I was like, all right, asshole, stop emailing me. Um, but I think your writing's really good. Tell me about yourself. Tell me what you want to do. Um, we went back and forth. He responded instantly that whole night. I looked on Twitter. He was on like a train from New York, I believe, to Boston or something that night. So he was clearly on his phone just responding to me. 
and then he gave me a trial period. So for about two months, I wrote for free under Barstool. I would write a you know a blog or two a day. And then at that point, he was like, you know, I think your writing's really good. You've been great. Uh, we're going to bring you on full time. Here you go. And at that point, Barstool is very much like, you know, here's your salary. Um, you pretty much have free reign. Go be creative and either become a star or don't, but it's up to you. And that was, you know, early 2016. It's been five and a half, almost six years now. Um, and things have grown and changed dramatically. I, I mean, you have Foreplay, which is a phenomenal podcast. And I got to bring this up now because my daughter was like, okay, she loves Trent yep. because of The Bachelor. Oh, yeah. And she's like, daddy, he's like the luggage dude. He like loves Twilight. You got to talk to him about Trent. Or like maybe from Mount St. Mary's, you can get Trent on your podcast and I can come <laughs> out there and help. Yeah. I'm like, okay, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to Riggs. And, and then what I was impressed about is your commissioner of these golf tournaments yeah. that you put on. But more importantly, what stood out in my mind was in May of COVID, the NCAA uh, regional event of, yeah. of just, I think it was around here somewhere. Yeah, it was at right. Whirlwind down the street, not far from here. Um, yeah, so we you know, we started the golf podcast in uh, early 2017. It was myself and Trent. And at the time, I mean, I'm employee number 19. I think Trent's employee number 12. Barcelona's probably got three or 400 employees now. Um, and at the time when I got hired, we were evaluated between 10 and $15 million. Now we're a billion-dollar company. So things have changed a lot Absolutely. in the last six years, five and a half years. But at the time, we were the only two people at the company on the content side, so talent side, as they call it, you know, that write blogs that are camera-facing, whatever, that were interested in golf whatsoever. And at this time, you know, four and a half years ago, everyone was starting a podcast. Um, podcasts were enormous. You've got a podcast now, and it's, it's a very, very good medium because, you know, tons of people listen to them. They're very cheap to produce and you can make a good amount of money with them. So we were like, we need to start a golf podcast. There's nothing out there. Golf's a pretty old school stuffy sport. Um, you know, people need to be professional and people need to speak about golf um, from a very professional standpoint with a lot of professional competitive experience. And and the ironic thing about that was that most people that play golf suck at golf. Most people that play golf, you know, d right, don't don't didn't play competitive golf and they can't break 90 or 100 or whatever, um, but they still love it. They still love going out and having that uh, fun time with their pals, going on trips, experiencing different courses, getting to check off that bucket list course, maybe having a few drinks, listening to music. That's how most people experience golf. Absolutely. So we started a golf podcast based on that premise, not really knowing what we're doing. We had no journalism experience whatsoever, no education, no, um, no interview, you know, background, nothing. Uh, we started a golf podcast. Now we've done over 400 episodes. Um, we're number one golf podcast in the world by far um, in terms of, you know, traction and listens and, and right. just how big kind of our podcast is. Um, we've added Frankie. We've added Lurch, who, you know, now we're kind of four guys that do a show, which makes sense because golf's kind of about foursomes. But, um, but, yeah, we've grown it dramatically, you know, in just – like I said, four and a half years, and it's great because Trent comes at it from a completely different vantage point than I look at it. You know, I'm a I'm a single digit handicap, and I'm always kind of trying to get better. And Trent was always how sort is of, Trent? How is his game? Trent's you know Trent's never he'd only broken now he's broken 100 twice in his life, okay. and he's played golf, <laughs> but he takes it he's very casual. He doesn't really care a ton about what he shoots or the mat. You know, he's a little bit more just out there to have a good time. And that again, there's a wide range of different styles of golfers, so it worked that we could kind of do a show together um and you know what separates us and which makes us really interesting i think because people have asked me before like who are you guys direct competitors i'm like i don't know that we have any because we're so different and unique and a good example of that speaking of trent it's like trent does 
this show, you know, Chicks in the Office with Fran and Rhea, which is our kind of uh, entertainment pop culture show, and they do an amazing job. And one of their big shows that they talk about is The Bachelor, and Trent is like the preeminent voice, male voice, yes. of The Bachelor in the world. He live tweets The Bachelor all the time. He's on their after show. He's on their podcast all the time. And Trent was just at their first live shows that they ever did, the, the Chicks in the Office show, um, in Boston, Thursday and Friday night, and Trent was their surprise guest, and he came out on stage and got, like, um, a Beatles-type reception where girls were like squealing because they saw Trent like oh my god it's Trent that would have been my daughter Sophia if you're listening and like she loves she also does a golf podcast so like you can't that's Barstool Sports for you Frankie Borelli you know one of our other co-hosts like he films pizza reviews for Dave Portnoy he is the drummer in a fake pop punk band that we had called pop punk um, and then he's also on a golf podcast. So, like, you can't, you know, I, at the beginning of the pandemic last year, I went to the White House. I did an interview um, with, Pence. with Mike Pence's chief, uh, uh, chief of staff, Mark Short, I believe is his name, who, you know, they he was literally running the, um, the COVID-19, you know, task force. And I went to the White House and interviewed him. So, like, we do all these other things. Um, because Barstool is such a, you know, unique... It gives you that platform and you have right. that creativity. And so that's what kind of separates us, is that, right, that creativity. Things that we're interested in, you can kind of pursue. And if you're talented and you're, you know, able to kind of cultivate a following and, a, and, a, and get some traction in it, then Barstool will continue to allow you to do it and will continue to fund you and give you the resources that you need to do it. So it's been the craziest place, the coolest place to work I could have ever imagined, which led ultimately to the Let Them Play, which we did last, you know, this May, mm-hmm. um, which I guess, what? five months ago now where the NCAA canceled the regional championship in Baton Rouge, um, deemed the course to be not playable on a championship level. You had, you know, um, all of these young women who had had their prior college season either completely wiped out or mostly wiped out because of the pandemic. Um, several of them that were seniors, you know, came back and did a COVID, you know, fifth year, came back as seniors, and then they had their final chance to kind of try to make it to the national championships up the street here at Greyhawk, taken away from them because they weren't allowed to compete because they said the course wasn't playable. So what they ended up doing was just taking the top six teams in the rankings and the other, I believe it was 12 or 14 teams that were supposed to be competing, weren't even given a shot. Their season, they were just told they're, it's over, go home, your season's done. For many of them, your college careers are done. You don't even get to finish your college career on the golf course with your teammates which is insane so the whole it went viral um that took off really quick because i was listening to token ceo i was following you and and the compliance was probably the hardest part yeah so i mean it was ncaa is obviously incredibly difficult with compliance and their rules and you don't want to harm anyone's you know uh eligibility by by basically inviting or putting them in a position where they do violate something because most of the time you have no idea if you're violating anything from an NCAA standpoint. So we are able to, you know, we do these 27 tournaments a year. We did this year um, with our with our team that does the Barstool Classic. So we're good at putting on golf tournaments. Um, we had the following week pretty much open. A bunch of my staff was going to have the week off or at least the week off from traveling. And every one of them, you know, we kind of mobilized the following morning. That happened on a Wednesday afternoon. That Thursday morning we were all together at uh, Monarch Beach, mm-hmm. uh, which is Orange County. Right down and, the road. And we were uh, there putting on a tournament. So we had 110, 20 golfers literally playing golf, hosting an event with – all this going on around us and we were on the phone non-stop and on our computers non-stop that morning figuring out if we could actually make this thing happen because we were going to do it the following week before everybody went home for the year i mean this is may yep. um you know we have 
uh, international student athletes who are going to go home to their you know home countries for the summer uh, or be done with their college careers and move on forever. If not, most people don't live where their school is, so people are just going to go home. So we needed to get this done fast. So that Thursday ha- uh, morning, you know, we mobilized. We called our CEO, Erica Nardini. We got the blessings from Erica and from Dave to absolutely do it. You got the full resources of Barstool behind you. We started having our sales team reach out to our partners, being like, can we raise the money to cover their flights, cover their lodging, cover their per diem? Um, Can we come up with a golf course? So we started, you know, I was on that task, knowing people around the Scottsdale area, Arizona, Phoenix area. Is there a venue that we could find that could bring in, you know, basically they're going to play 36 holes one day and 18 holes the next day. So they need to have enough availability on their golf course which in may in arizona is not easy to get so we had to come up with that we had to get somebody on the case to figure out compliance will ncaa allow us to do it um can we even do that and then we had to be you know basically have a advisory something along that line to help to figure out how to actually put on a women's college golf tournament because we don't want to invite them all to something they fly across the country and then they're like what the hell is this because we've never done it before (laughs) we need people that are in the know that what format should we do when does there need to be lunch available can there be lunch available is that illegal when do they usually eat how much time they need in between rounds how is too many 18 holes in a day too much 36 what's what are we supposed to do like we don't so we needed to find people that would help us in that cause and we did all that about five hours um we had everybody ready to go we came up with a logo um we put merchandise up on the site so all the proceeds from that merchandise that we sold which we sold a lot of it went towards paying for again the girls expenses um and then we had compliance offices from uh, mississippi state from purdue from a few other programs helping us big time because they have relationships with the ncaa and it was mostly uh, mississippi state and purdue because they're big programs that obviously yep. deal with the ncaa a ton um so they were able to help us on the ncaa front in terms of getting it approved so we originally got it approved where the girls could play as individuals which is no different than them playing in the u.s amateur or something like that um and then we got it approved where they could wear their school uniforms. And then we got it approved where it could be an unsanctioned but approved team event. So it wouldn't go on the, you know, that's not an official NCAA victory if they win, they right. let them play. But they can do it. Their coach, which means their coach can come. Their coach can give them advice on shots. Their coach can coach Love them it. through practice rounds. Um, their coach can book all their flights for them and book hotels and organize dinners and all that, which is important for finishing their season and their experience, how they finish all or how they experience all tournaments, which is you want to be together as a team. Right. Um, so we got all that approved. We got everything done and put on a tournament five days later, basically. We did it uh, the following, I believe, Thursday and Friday. So yeah. from that Wednesday afternoon when that you know that thing went viral until the following third and that wednesday they were doing practice rounds so really we got it done in about four and a half five days where that wednesday morning you know they were all on site i was there watching them hit shots we were in there hitting shots with them messing around practice rounds and they played thursday friday um cisco came on board as one of our sponsors who you know raised a bunch of money to help cover the expense and then they brought in all their technology to have the seniors families were able I to be uh webexed in then that makes you just feel gratified so i was crying i was like yeah, right. a, i was a pillow out there just <laughs> absolutely crying so it was it was awesome it was the most fulfilling thing i've ever done that i love it and, and you just talked about crying I, emotional guy the best thing you remembered about pinehurst your 99 days <laughs> Honestly, there too, the people that I met, you know, because um, the resort's amazing. It's It's got all this history. It's got all this prestige. Um, the golf courses are, you know, they're bucket list courses for anybody who plays golf in the world. To play Pioneer's number two, Pioneer's number four, the cradle. Um, you know, these things stick out to any golfer as you want to take pictures on the course and all that. 
but the staff that actually run that place, you know, a lot of them are my age are a lot more my type of of person in terms of, you know, they're more blue collar. They come from different parts of the country. Um, so I usually become closer with the staff everywhere I go than really anybody else. And, you know, I ended up, I was going to, I went to Piners um, mid-March is when kind of the quarantine set in and the world started shut down. And I left in, I believe, June. And in July of that year, I was actually... My friend Dave Galinsky, who's now the head pro there at Pinehurst, who's in his high 20s, so he's a young head pro. He's he's an awesome guy. He's from uh, kind of the New York area. And he um, and his wife Kayla actually had set it up where I was going to introduce them at their wedding. That's how, like, how close we became during quarantine. I literally had never even met him before I went to Pinehurst during wow. quarantine. So in two and a half, three months, you know, I became so now close to so man. many different people <laughs> that I wasn't going to be best man, but, you know, they were going to come in for their reception and have somebody on the mic that was going to introduce them at their reception. That was going to be me. So um, ended up with COVID and everything, kind of the, the new spike. They weren't able to do the wedding that they wanted, so I didn't get to do that. But long story short, I met, you know, met a lot of folks at Pinehurst and became really, really close with people that I otherwise would probably never know. Your favorite guy's trip? Where did you go? If there's one that stands Pinehurst is up there. You know, I would say like Pinehurst, Cabot Links, which is in Nova Scotia, uh, and, you know, Bandon are the best. I think Big Cedar Lodge, which is down in my home state, which is near Branson, Missouri. Um, Big Cedar Lodge now has three awesome 18-hole courses, two par three courses. The new Tiger course they opened last year called Payne's Valley. That's skyrocketing, I think, is a huge destination spot. So, you know, I would those, those kind of four stick out for me, I think. Pinehurst is great in that there's a ton of ton 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 of golf options, even outside of the resort, like two, four, even for a double but index handicap. Yeah, I mean Pinehurst <laughs> is great because you won't lose a golf ball. There's really very little water. I mean, there's almost no water at, at Pinehurst. Not um, like fucking Whistling Straits. So right, and and so you can hit the ball sideways, and there's just pine needles and trees everywhere. So yeah, you're gonna have to craft something up you have to get real creative out there uh you might have to shave some low shots and punch them through trees and stuff but you'll find your ball all day which i think you know if you go to florida a lot of florida courses have water and ponds everywhere that can be infuriating you know out at like bandon dunes where you know it's it's pretty tough there to lose balls too but there are a lot of holes on the ocean where if you miss on the wrong side it'll be off a cliff and stuff so piner's nice in that even though it's hard golf it is you find your golf ball most of the time where would you put the aaron hills Whistling Straits, Black Wolf. Up there. I love the Wisconsin Loop. Um, I took my whole crew to Wisconsin this year. We did Aaron Hills. Yeah, we did Aaron Hills. Stayed there for four nights. Um, went up to Whistling Straits for one day, uh, which is beautiful and is as spectacular as it gets. But it's a really hard course to play for the average golfer. So you, they might not get the same enjoyment factor. The views are incredible. You get a lot of good pictures. Um, and it's in great shape. It's awesome. But I thought Aaron Hills more playable, even though it's a U.S. Open course as well. So we played Aaron Hills most of the time. Sand Valley, which is right there, has two really playable golf courses, awesome resort golf. So there's a lot of good golf in Wisconsin. Your index. Oh, man. I guess right now I'm around a 3.2 or something, 3.2. Best golf course with the best cart girls. Greyhawk. Shit, then I got to come out here and golf with yep. you. I got to bring Casey out here. Yeah, I think uh, Greyhawk might have the most beautiful cart girls in the country. Um, yeah, I remember it was funny. We had Kevin Kisner on the show right after he won the Wyndham a few months ago. And he was he had like a bottle of wine, and we were just letting it rip. We talked for like an hour, hour and a half. Okay. And he got to cart. You know, he was going to say cart girl. And he's like, cart person? Because he just wasn't <laughs> sure. So you don't obviously want to be offensive, but I think you know if you're a if you're a heterosexual male and you're into um, attractive women, which is very normal, 
Uh, there's many of them at Greyhawk that also operate the beverage carts. So if you th- if you're someone that thinks that will enhance your experience, uh, that would be my vote. They they do a great job up there. Oh, I love it. This has been amazing having rigs. I mean, we could do this forever. I only asked you for two hours of your time, but obviously you have guests come back. I, I do kind of want to wrap up with, with, with one of my favorite players and, and some people on tour. What do you think of my boy LG, Lanto Griffin? <laughs> <laughs> Seems I, like an awesome guy. Um, he's got a great story, right? Yes. You know, his whole backstory is, is impossible not to root for. Um, he's had some pretty good success, you know, he's one of those kind of like, feels like up and coming guys who could kind of break through and, and he's been through the ranks and, and all that. I think that every time he's done an interview, it comes off like the most likable, uh, guy that, that again, I think a lot of people just naturally root for. So whenever I see Lonto Griffin on a, on a leaderboard, I'm rooting for him for sure. I didn't LG. I was like. Who the fuck's that? Who's LG? But, but yeah, <laughs> I, I think he's very rootable, very easily rootable. We were at my coach's wedding in Greenbrier, and he was the hole right behind me. Yeah. So that's when I got to know him, and he's starting to say Fonger, and he'll email me once in a while. And before this trip, I, I said, uh, it, I, I told him, I go, Do you, are you familiar with Riggs? Riggs at Barstool? But I'll have to hit him up. I'm going to show yeah. him that clip. We'll, we'll have to get him on your podcast. For sure. Uh, he's so such a chill dude. Yeah, I've heard. I've heard good things. Like it comes dude. off great when he does interviews, which, you know, unfortunately, it's hard on the PGA Tour. Like, unless somebody's really in the mix or wins an event, you know, a lot of guys can just kind of... Um, they're not on TV. They don't show their shots. They don't interview him a ton. So when he's had his success and been up there um, and they have been able to interview him and get him the you know a little bit of exposure i feel like people are like oh, i love this guy yeah people will say well who's your favorite golfer i'm like lonto they're like who's that i go well <laughs> he's like in the top 50 and then every <laughs> once in a while like this weekend it was i think tied for six yeah 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 uh another one what about my asian cousin colin <laughs> <laughs> he's a killer he's a stone cold killer i think he's gonna be really good for a really long time so yeah colin he's been uh we've had him on three times i think so far this okay year. so he's been a pretty good recurring guest for us um so we like him a lot as i do in every podcast at the end i always make my pitch because then i do a little clip i youtube it i'll do send the qr code everything to erica dave and deidra and i'm gonna put you on the spot either you like this or you don't like it but why should the Fonger News and the student manager potentially be on Barstool Sports? <laughs> well, look, I think at Barstool, if you can carve out um, a niche that's not already being you know, covered um, and basically attract a large audience that's really engaged in, in everything that you're doing, then I think Barstool will be really interested. So it really comes down to being that simple. Barstool is obviously in the business of entertaining people, um, making people laugh, huh? but Barstool is also a real business. So, you know, they bring on things that can, that can, in theory, you know, grow a new audience that we don't currently have so that Barstool can get bigger and bigger. Well, and, that, and that's the whole thing. My, my pitch Again, Dave, Eric, and Deidre, if you're listening, it's to grow the next generation of audience and followers and create that revenue by having the number one college search and admission uh, podcast. Uh, hopefully, you've been entertained. I got you to laugh a little bit. We've oh, had yeah. a good time. It's Great a, time. I mean, look at this view, Rick. Mm-hmm. I mean, you we're can't doing, ask. We're doing all right. Yeah, no, this <laughs> right? is a nice spot. I've never been here before, like I said. So. You might have to do some of your shit out here. I have. Like most places, I've played the golf course, but I haven't seen anything else. I'm usually <laughs> just in and out, play the golf, and I'm gone. So it's a nice, nice spot. Well, thank you for being a guest. We'll do it again. For the Fonger News and the student manager, out.